Welcome to session two of the symposium today. Um, the three co-conveners decided that there were three sort of key stories coming out of the, um, the period run up to the First World War, the war itself and the peace conference. Um, one, of course, was the creation of Yugoslavia, which thanks to Ivo we've looked at in, in some detail. The second story, big story, is of Turkey arising from the ashes of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and the third story, the third big storyline, is the vicissitudes of Greece, um, and in particular the, um, what led up to the, the great disaster. Um, so session one covered the first of these stories, um, and we've already lost one of our empires, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, in this session, we're going to look at the other two stories, and we're going to lose another of our empires, uh, the Ottoman Empire, but I mustn't uh, steal Eugene's thunder. Um, turning to our speakers, um, Eugene Rogan is University Lecturer in the Modern History of the Middle East and a Fellow of St. Anthony's. Um, he's author of The Arabs, A History, uh, and his forthcoming book, The Fall of the Ottomans, The Great War in the Middle East, uh, 1914 to 1920, is scheduled for publication in 2015. So you can order your copy now. Um, then there's Vasily, or Basil Gunaris, uh, Professor of Modern History at the Department of History and Archaeology, Aristotle University, and the Dean of Humanities at the Hellenic International University, both of those institutions being Thessaloniki. Um, he's also for many years been Director of the Centre for Macedonian History and Documentation. So we have two really excellent speakers to talk to us. Uh, each will speak for about 30 minutes, which means we'll then have about 45 minutes available for question, answer, discussion. And I think it's very important that we have a full 45 minutes, because just looking at the audience, I can see that there are many distinguished experts present in the audience today, and we'd, we'd love to hear from you. Othon mentioned a few in his introduction, but there are others as well. Um, indeed, just looking around the room, I see we could have put together another two or three panels on the basis of those just present here today. Um, but I think probably we won't. Perhaps another time. Perhaps another time. I mean, after all, the, the First World War lasted for four years, so there's plenty of opportunities for more symposia. Um, right. Uh, Eugene, you have the floor. Well, David, thank you so much. And I'd like to thank the organizers for the honor of the invitation. I feel as though I should be saying thank you to the organizers on behalf of the Ottoman Empire for inviting us back to the Balkans. That said, I, I do also feel a bit of an interloper because I really am far much a, more a stranger to Balkan history than most of you in the audience. But having been flattered by the invitation, I couldn't say no. And so what I'd like to do is discuss the issues that before, during, and after the war really shaped the impact of the fall of the Ottoman Empire on the Balkan states. And if we were to look at the big issues that divided the Ottoman Empire from the Balkan states, they all had to do with demography and territory, both before, during, and after the Great War. Thrace, Macedonia, and the Aegean Islands were lands heatedly contested between the Ottomans and their Balkan neighbors. 
To some extent, those disputes were violently resolved through the two Balkan Wars of 1912 and 1913. And Balkan nationalist movements had impressed on both Turkey and its neighbors a false sense of incompatibility between Muslims and Christians that led implacably towards a homogeneously Christian Balkans and a homogeneously Muslim Anatolia. The means used were called population transfers at that time. Today, of course, we would refer to them as ethnic cleansing. Whatever the rhetoric, the devastating consequences for the populations involved have left enduring scars that by far transcended the period of the Great War and paved the way for a Greco-Turkish antagonism that was really to be one of the enduring features of the international relations of the Mediterranean world right through the 20th century. In the early months of 1914, just before the outbreak of war, the European powers tried to broker peace negotiations to resolve the outstanding differences between the Ottoman Empire and its Balkan neighbors. To some degree, the injection of foreign capital helped, and France's loan of $100 million to assist in economic reconstruction in the Ottoman Empire went a long way to induce the Ottomans to accept their losses in Albania, Macedonia, and Thrace by promising through this foreign injection of capital real economic growth after two terrible wars. But even after the peace agreements had been signed and the terms of the loan concluded, there remained very significant issues outstanding between Istanbul and Athens. The peace agreements left Greece in possession of three key Aegean islands seized from Turkey in the Balkan Wars. Chios and Mytilene, dominating the entry to Smyrna, or modern Izmir, were within sight of the Turkish mainland. So these are not islands that seemed remote from Turkey. They seemed very much on the horizon when viewed from the mainland. Limnos, with its strategic harbor of Mudros, was less than 80 kilometers from the strategic straits of the Dardanelles. The port never accepted the loss of these islands and was unwilling to live with Greece, dominating its coastal waters through these islands. While Ottoman diplomats sought European support for their government's claims to the restoration of the Aegean Islands, Ottoman war planners worked to shift the balance of naval power in the, Middle East, uh, in the Mediterranean instead. The Ottoman government commissioned two state-of-the-art dreadnoughts as their solution to the naval imbalance in the Eastern Mediterranean. The British shipbuilders Vickers and Armstrong took the commission in August 1911 for delivery three years later. The orders were placed as part of a British naval mission to help modernize the Ottoman fleet. The two ships, the Sultan Osman and the Reshadir, named for the first and the last or latest Ottoman sultans, were a tremendous drain on the Ottoman treasury. These were very expensive, state-of-the-art warships. Appealing to Ottoman patriotism, the government funded the ships in large part through public subscription. Turkish school children were encouraged to contribute their pocket money, and fundraising stands were opened across Ottoman cities in which if you made a contribution of five piastres, you were allowed to drive a great big nail into a very large block of wood. And somehow this seemed to capture what it meant to be getting these dreadnoughts for the Ottoman Empire at the individual level. While the ships became a focus of Ottoman pride, redressing 
the empire's naval forces after the defeats of both the Libyan War of 1911 and the two Balkan Wars, Greece and Russia were much less enthusiastic about these developments. The massive battleships would give the Turkish Navy the advantage over the Russian Black Sea Fleet, but would also dramatically shift the balance of power in the Aegean. The Aegean Islands dispute and the impending delivery of British dreadnoughts to the Ottoman Navy raised a real prospect of war between Greece and Turkey in the first half of 1914. Officials in Greece were calling for preemptive strikes against the Ottoman Navy before they took delivery of these two dreadnoughts that would change the balance of power. And the Ottomans, for their part, prepared their citizens once again for war by sending around through sealed envelopes the mobilization posters, which village headmen were told to keep sealed until further notice. As it turned out, those mobilization posters would not be used for war against Greece, but of course would be torn open when the Ottomans mobilized for the Great War in August that year. On August 2nd, 1914, the Ottoman Empire concluded a secret mutual defense pact with Germany, which was for all intents and purposes a war pact, given the circumstances. The Turks presented the Germans with their war aims four days later, when the Germans desperately sought entry for two of their naval vessels into the neutral and sealed Straits of the Dardanelles. In a pre-dawn meeting with Ambassador Wangenheim on the 6th of August, Prime Minister Said Halim Pasha laid out his government's conditions for allowing the Goben and Breslau to enter the Straits. Said Halim presented six demands of Germany that represent, in a sense, the earliest statement of Ottoman war aims in the Great War. Two of Said Halim's conditions addressed recent Ottoman losses in the Balkans. First, the Ottomans were determined to secure agreements with Romania and Bulgaria before entering into any hostilities with the triple, against the Triple Entente to ensure that its Balkan neighbors would not threaten Turkish Thrace or Istanbul. So they needed to have Germany give Iron Pact guarantees of good behavior by Romania and Bulgaria. Now, as we all know, Bulgaria, after much wavering, ultimately does join with the Central Powers in October of 1915. Romania, which ultimately sided with the Entente, was the only country in the First World War that the Ottomans actually declared war on. The Ottomans were on the receiving end of many declarations of war without ever reciprocating. But the one country that the Ottomans actively declared war on was Romania on the 30th of August, 1916. Footnote. Back to Said Halim's conditions of Ambassador Wangenheim to allow these two fugitive vessels into the Straits. The second, well, second part of the first condition, uh, the Grand Vizier sought German assistance, both in concluding indispensable understandings with Romania and Bulgaria, and in negotiating a fair agreement with Bulgaria for an equitable division of possible spoils of war. So what Said Halim Pasha was doing was laying out the possibility that if a war went particularly well for the Ottoman Empire and its German allies, that they might actually be able to recover some lost territory in the Balkans, thinking back to 1912-1913. Secondly, should Greece enter the war on the side of the Entente powers and be defeated, Germany would assure the return of the three Aegean islands, Chios, Mytilene, or Lesbos, and Limnos, to Turkish sovereignty. 
Okay, so much for the geographical issues. <clears throat> Equally serious were the demographic divides between Muslims and Christians in the Balkans and Anatolia. <clears throat> in their short time in power, the young Turks had overseen extensive population transfers. Territorial losses in the Balkans drove waves of destitute Muslims to seek refuge in Ottoman domains. Without the resources to address this humanitarian crisis, the Turkish leadership created space for these Balkan refugees by deporting thousands of Ottoman Christians to Greece. A government committee then oversaw the re reallocation of the houses and fields and workshops of deported Ottoman Christians to help with the resettlement of Muslims coming from the Balkans. <clears throat> These quote-unquote population exchanges were regulated by formal agreements concluded between the port and the Balkan states. So you had, in this sense, ethnic cleansing with an official seal of approval. The deportation of ethnic Greeks from the Ottoman Empire <clears throat> served several purposes. Deportation not only freed up homes and workplaces for the resettlement of Balkan Muslims, but it also allowed the Ottomans to expel thousands of citizens that they saw as being of questionable loyalty to the Ottoman state. So there is a political motive behind the kind of human resettlement motive. Tensions over the Aegean island that threatened renewed war between Greece and the Ottoman Empire in the first six months of 1914 had left Ottoman Greeks vulnerable and exposed. So the population exchanges initiated after the Balkan Wars had provided the kind of internationally sanctioned solution to the empire's Greek problem. So what started as a controlled exchange of border populations between belligerents evolved into a systematic expulsion of ethnic Greeks from Ottoman lands generally. Though there are no pre uh, precise figures for these deportations, several hundred thousand Christians and Muslims were forcibly relocated before and during the First World War. <clears throat> the deeper the deportations were applied within Asia Minor, the more the government had to rely on violence and intimidation to achieve their aims. Ottoman Christian villagers in Anatolia, very far from the troubled Balkans, resisted the state's efforts to recruit them. These were their homes and villages the fields that they and their generations before them had farmed. Gendarmes rounded up villagers, beat up the men, threatened to kidnap women, even killed Ottoman Greeks who resisted deportation. Foreign consuls, appalled by the violence against Christian civilians, reported dozens killed in some villages. You see an exchange of very alarmed reports between the different European and American consular agents working in Anatolia at the time. <clears throat> But the thing is this, the expulsion of the Greeks from Anatolia could be carried out with a relatively low level of violence against individuals precisely because there was a Greece to which you could deport these people. And this, I would argue, <clears throat> is the primary difference between the fate of the Ottoman Greeks, uprooted and deported, but not subjected to mass murder, and the Armenians, who, because they did not have a country to which they could be deposited, of course faced genocide. <clears throat> With the defeat of the Ottomans in October 1918, these issues were only exacerbated by the terms of the peace treaty. 
as Margaret Macmillan has so eloquently written in her earlier work, Peacemakers, Greek Prime Minister Venizelos had, from the very start of the Paris Peace Conference, pressed Greece's claims to Anatolia, but arguably with mixed success. He gave dodgy statistics to try and argue that the demography of the coastline of Turkey was overwhelmingly Greek, and that if you took the area around Smyrna, that basically Turks were an absolute minority in their own land. Venizelos was particularly adamant in making a claim to the port of Smyrna, Izmir to the Turks, one of the Mediterranean boom towns of the 19th century. The pre-war population of Izmir was 250,000, and more Greeks lived there than in Athens itself. But his bid for Izmir and its hinterlands, reaching deep into western Anatolia, created a Greek province with a huge number of non-Greeks, as well as a very long line to defend for anybody who might choose to attack it from the Anatolian uh, hinterlands. But Venizelos reinforced his claims to Smyrna and its hinterlands by reporting that Turks were massacring Greeks, and in this way got an authorization from the Big Three to send a Greek cruiser off the coast of Smyrna. This was followed by the decision taken fatefully on the 6th of May 1919 to dispatch Greek troops to protect the civilians of Smyrna and its hinterlands. As we know, the landing of Greek soldiers on the 15th of May, far from calming a tense uh, situation, inflamed it. And there were riots, shooting, and violence on that day that left three, between three and 400 Turks dead and certainly no less than 100 Greeks dead. However destabilizing to the peace of Western Anatolia, the Greek claim to Izmir was formalized in the Treaty of Sèvres, imposed by the victorious Allied powers on the defeated Ottoman Empire, and was signed uh, on the 10th of August, 1920. It's section four of the Treaty of Sèvres that treats the issues surrounding the future of Smyrna. It creates a kind of Greek condominium written in a diplomatic doublespeak that the great powers seem to have mastered to make the unpalatable seem positively reasonable. In a new formula, Smyrna was to remain under Turkish sovereignty, but Turkey was to transfer to the Greek government the exercise of her rights of sovereignty over Smyrna and its hinterlands. So sovereignty is still Turkish, but Turkey cedes its right of sovereignty to Greece. The Greek government was made responsible for the administration of Smyrna and would name its own officials to oversee the port and the territories behind it. The Greeks were allowed to garrison soldiers in Smyrna for the maintenance of order and public security, as many soldiers as they saw fit. They were to oversee the creation of a local parliament to be filled by people elected from the local population in a process that was to be approved by the League of Nations. And relations between the Greek administration, so the oversight of the port and area would be under a Greek-appointed administration, their relations with the local parliament would be regulated within the terms of the Greek constitution. In five years' time, the local parliament could petition the League of Nations for the incorporation of Smyrna into the Kingdom of Greece, at which point Turkish sovereignty would cease. 
Well, you didn't have to be a radical Turkish nationalist to see in the formula of the Treaty of Sèvres everything it took within a five-year period to formalize a transfer of a central part of Asia Minor from Turkish to Greek control. The terms of the treaty, duly signed by the powerless Ottoman government, set in motion the Kemalist rejection that would lead to war, the creation of the Turkish Republic, and the expulsions of the remaining Greek population from Anatolia. It took until the 10th of September 1922 before Ataturk entered Smyrna and declared it Izmir once and for all. The city was sacked and burned, and those who survived dispersed as refugees towards Greece. The war had created such antagonisms between Turks and Greeks in Anatolia that villages across Thrace and Asia Minor abandoned their homes to join this exodus from Turkish territory. This population transfer was formalized by an agreement concluded between the governments of Greece and Turkey, which arranged for a compulsory exchange of populations involving some 1.3 million Greeks from Anatolia and Thrace. The only exception to this expulsion were those Greek residents of Istanbul or Constantinople who had been living in the city since before 1918. Otherwise, every Greek from every village and every town in Anatolia was to be forcibly deported. And about a half million Turks to be expelled from Greece, except for those living in Western Thrace. So you have, by formal agreement, the forced displacement of nearly two million people as a consequence of these actions. Thus, the demographic differences were bridged by ethnic cleansing and the territorial differences by war. Turkey achieved statehood in all of Anatolia, but to this day, Greece still holds those three disputed islands in the Aegean, immediately off the coast of Turkey. Lesbos, Chios, um, and Limnos. Um, and the enduring legacy, one need only point to the Turco-Greek antagonism, which had at so many points provoked crisis in the Eastern Mediterranean, not least around places like Cyprus, to see that the false demarches of peace had left an enduring legacy of trouble from the fall of the Ottomans in the First World War. Thank you. Down with the empire. Uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, let me thank the organizers uh, for inviting me, bringing me back home to St. Anthony's where so many things have changed, but the spirit is, is the same. Uh, I was really honored because I'm, I'm not a specialist in World War I, unlike all the other speakers. Uh, so I, it took me some time to, to decide which was going to be my point of view in this presentation. And, and considering that a lot of diplomacy was going to be presented, I thought to choose something different and explain why World War I is an unwanted legacy uh, for Greece, and through that to make uh, certain arguments about Greece and, and, and as a modern nation. Uh, I have very vivid memories from my school days. You may hold it against me, but <coughs> the past has always been, for me, a beloved topic of discussion. Uh, this preference, however, had nothing to do with my uh, school classes. But my, my grandfather uh, fought in three different wars. His first experience was in the Great War. An Adamant supporter of Eleutherios Venizelos, he left Greek Eastern Macedonia 
and his unit on a boat in early September 1916 to escape captivity, and thus he missed the opportunity to flirt the German girls, uh, girls together with the rest of the 4th Greek Army Corps. Uh, instead, he was injured at the Battle of Ravine, fighting with the French and the British. My grandmother also had very vivid memories dating back to 1908, when Greek and Bulgarian armed bands were still clashing throughout Ottoman-held Macedonia. She also kept telling me about the Bulgarian invasion of 1916. Her village was captured by the Bulgarian army. Her father and brother were deported to Bulgaria and spent some time doing hard labor. She was 12 years old at the time, and her strong anti-Bulgarian sentiments marked my childhood. One of her favorite stories was about the glorious lion statue of Amphipolis, parts of which were discovered by English soldiers digging trenches along the south of law of the Struma River in 1916. And to be honest, uh, archaeology was my first choice, but history won me eventually. Uh, I apologize for having bothered you with my family stories. I, I just want to make clear that World War I, at least for me, was not a vaguely known or ill-digested historical event. I grew up not only with fairy tales, but also with overdoses of, of history, and I became addicted. To my surprise, however, at school, I was taught nothing about the Great War until I was in the third grade of high school. In my case, I think often mentioned that uh, as well. Uh, we're approximately the same age, it looks. Uh, so, my case is not exceptional, considering that uh, at the time, the history of Greece after 1821, after the War of uh, Independence, uh, was not a compulsory part uh, of any history course. There was never enough time to, to allow us to go beyond independence, too much history. More important, though, was the absence of World War I from public history. There were impressive celebrations for the declaration of the Greek-Italian War in 1940 and for the defense against the Germans at the Metaxa line uh, in uh, April 1941. Uh, we knew a lot about the heroic death of Pavlos Melas, the pioneer of the struggle for Macedonia against the Bulgarians in 1904. Uh, we could see the monuments. There were films on all these topics with well-known cinema stars. We also knew about the crash of the communists in 1949 that ended the Greek Civil War, although we learned little about communism itself. So let me start by reminding you very crudely of some milestones of the crucial decade 1912-1922. Some of them already mentioned. In 1913, following the Balkan Wars, Greece had expanded to Crete, the Aegean Islands, Epirus, and Macedonia. But at the outbreak of World War I, it was still debatable whether she could defend her new possessions on her own. As we all know, territorial promises were crucial for the formation of alliances in the Balkans. But by 1915, the course of the war and the multifaceted diplomacy rendered it impossible to decide which side or neutrality was the obvious choice for Greece. There were convincing arguments for any choice, but none without a very big risk. Yet, there was no time for contemplation. Inability to decide and reluctance to take a unanimous risk resulted in a heated political debate and a constitutional crisis. King Constantine and Premier Eleftherios Venizelos drifted irrevocably apart after two elections in 1915. The political schism and, and the pressing necessities of the war, the Gallipoli uh, campaign and the collapse of, of Serbia, 
let the Antant powers to occupy parts of Greek Macedonia, mm -hmm. Epirus, and some islands. Greece was divided not only politically, but also geographically, just two years after she had received those lands. On top of this, in 1916, Venizelos established a provisional government in Thessaloniki. That was a full-scale national schism. Reunification of the two Greek parts, the so-called Old Greece and the New Lands, was violent. It was accomplished under tremendous allied military pressure and the king was forced to abdicate. Greece joined the Entente in time to fight some big battles, but the officers' corps was divided and the army's morale did not fully recover. The deficit in war effort was balanced by participating in the Ukrainian campaign against the Bolsheviks. Eventually, Venizelos, rather than Greece, was awarded with spoils, such as Eastern and Western Thrace and the Smyrna region, as uh, was just said, in Asia Minor, in any case too big and too fragile <coughs> to handle. Eastern Thrace and Smyrna were lost after the disastrous Asia Minor catastrophe, and what constituted the essence, the essence of the national catastrophe was not the military disaster, but what was mentioned, the uprooting of 1.3 or 1.5 million Greek Orthodox civilians. In one decade, Greece marched from the absolute triumph to absolute disaster. It is a series of historical events that went wrong. They could not and should not be analyzed separately, I think. But if we are to see the period as a whole, the whole decade, at this point one could reasonably ask, given the course of European diplomacy before, during and after the Great War, undecided until the American entry. Was the outcome of the decade an unmitigated disaster for Greece? Was the king right and should have stayed neutral? Did we turn at the wrong turning point? <laughs> Definitely not. In addition to Western Thrace, all the territorial gains of the Balkan Wars were confirmed, while hundreds of thousands of Muslims and Bulgarians, populations which Greece could hardly ever absorb, were evacuated or forced to flee, never to return. Northern Greece, after the influx of the Asia Minor refugees, looked impressively homogeneous. This was not a negligible development at all. Asia Minor had been sacrificed, not in vain, considering that preserving Macedonia and Thrace on behalf of Greece was not the priority of any great power until then. Why, then, has this significant outcome of the Balkan and the Great Wars combined been eradicated from our collective memory? Since I left school in, in the late 1970s, things have not changed much. Although eventually the history of uh, the 20th century caught the attention of Greek educational uh, planners, the legacy of World War I is regarded as a complicated academic topic that has remained the exclusive preserve of specialists. Why? Some reasons are more obvious than others. Tracing them down, I hope, will facilitate to understand the long-term repercussions of the Great War for Greece. The key person in the 1910s and 1920s was Venizelos, from 1909 to his death in 1936, to be exact. He was involved in whatever happened during these 25 years, in his presence or in his absence. Although he had resisted a constitutional assembly in 1911, which might have led to a republican regime, it was only after his clash with King Constantine that he developed into a leading figure of the Republican regime, eventually established in 1924, and certainly into an emblem for the Greek Democrats ever after. 
Greece, however, was a kingdom under the same dynasty, Constantine's sons, George and Paul, from 1935 to 1974. The dynasty was aware that the popular support they had accumulated during World War II, the Civil War and the Cold War, had not neutralized the provincialist feelings. It was only out of fraud and necessity rather than love that George II had been restored in 1935 and in 1946, respectively. The king was the head of the state, but Venizelos was the true leader of the nation, Athnarchis. Glorifying his achievements was impossible before World War II and undesirable after the war. The two emblems, the royal crown and Venizelos' famous silk side cap, were incompatible. To give you an example, in the 50th anniversary of the First Balkan War in, in the 50th, in 1962, an impressive volume was published presenting the evolution of Salonika as a Greek city after 1912. It is amazing by all means that there were no chapters in this book for the post-1912 political events, only presentations by subject, education after 1912, uh, urban planning, healthcare, Boy Scouts, uh, gendarmerie, etc. The 20th century history of Salonika, the capital of Venizelos' provisional government, the headquarters of the Prontant Greeks, was an embarrassment for the king, whose large-scale portrait covered the first page of the head, that huge uh, volume. The story of the Great War could not be reassessed by academic historians without offending him. In the second edition of the Great Greek Encyclopedia, which is 28-volume uh, encyclopedia, it's, it's the book of reference in, in Greece, and the second edition was in the early 1950s, under the subject Eleftherios Venizelos, the once director of his political office, Apotis Tsimvidaros, presenting his contribution to the Great Antia, the unification of, of Hellenism, but not his clash with the king, absolutely not, not a word about that clash. Nor was the memory of Venizelos' diplomatic initiatives and confrontation useful in terms of post-World War II politics. To start with, in the 1940s, 1950s and early 1960s, many of the interwar protagonists were still politically active among them Venizelos' younger son, Sophocles, but were not always in good terms with each other. The Liberal Party of Venizelos uh, split, not the first time, in 1946, and uh, was reunited in 1947. Uh, it is impossible to analyze here the party politics of the Liberals until they were defeated by Marshal Alexandros Papagos in 1952. But I could argue that Although the legacy of Venizelos was extremely important for them, reference to World War I was counterproductive during uh, the Civil War and meaningless afterwards, since a commonly accepted prerequisite of being national-minded ethnicophron was to be loyal to the king, apart from being a fervent anti-communist. Even the Asia Minor refugees, the par excellence supporters of the Liberal Party, scattered in, in the Greek Macedonian hinterland, had turned pro-royalist under the threat of communist guerrillas and brigands. The example of Venizelos' productive premiership from 1928 to 1932 was still inspiring politicians. Even Constantine uh, Karamalis uh, in the late 1950s and, and the 1960s, he had been impressed by the, uh, the uh, work produced by Venizelos. But this did not imply any wish to stir up the passions which World War I had introduced to Greek politics at a time when the nation suffered a new version of schism, this time between the left and the right wings. To sum up, the legacy of World War I constituted a major political trauma. Healing could be achieved more effectively and conveniently through amnesia. 
In fact, healing this political blood feud was meaningless for the Greek society. Since then, Greeks had learned and were used to swimming in blood. At this point, one could possibly ask whether and why the army itself, a powerful factor in uh, post-World War II events, was also indifferent to the memory of significant military uh, events, for example, the memory of the victorious uh, World War I battles of uh, Skorgat Legen uh, or uh, Ravinet, as, as I mentioned. Was it not a political capital to be treasured? The Army History Section published its version of World War I military events in 1958. In the preface of this two-volume edition, General Kanelopoulos confessed that 40 years after the events, the major challenge they had to face as historians was how to be objective in the study of military events which could not be separated from the dramatic political background. To achieve this, he said, he wrote, they had relied on objective sources, but also on the assumption that time had dissolved the haze created by hatred. However, the first page of this book was also covered, surprisingly, by King Constantine's portrait, thus leaving by few chances of objectivity. And I'm not saying that that this book is, is, is a libel against Venizelos, but the deliberate plan uh, of the authors is obvious, to focus on the achievements of the soldiers and to leave aside or to be critical of the politics which had brought this war effort to a victorious end. Two additional points should be made here. First, World War I was not the type of war that produces Greek heroes. Our pantheon of war heroes includes only those who fought irregular wars on the mountains as volunteers in the service of some great idea, not the reservists or the professional soldiers, bound by legal obligations, no matter how heroically they fought. So the Great War produced no heroes because Greek heroes are not to be found in trenches and they are not dressed in uniforms but in kilts. Not to mention that the above-mentioned Army History publication made clear that the reservists had been dragged to this war and many des deserters had been executed. My second point has to do with the role of the Entente powers. I will return to the international relation factor later on, but here must be stressed that when the army history of World War I was written in the late 1950s, uh, heroes of the traditional type were being produced in Cyprus, where the struggle for union with Greece was in full swing. Surely attached to Washington, se sorry, securely attached to Washington, and not always in best terms with Paris, Greece had not any particular reason to cover up the violent way in which French and British forces had imposed their military presence in 1915 and how they had established Venizelos' regime in Athens in 1916. Nor could disrespect uh, for the sneaky Italians be hidden. As far as Greece was concerned in the 1950s, Antant was no longer cordial and no longer treasured as such, especially the Cyprus question the small idea which replaced uh, the great one, undermined seriously Greek-British relations. Not to mention the decisive role the British had played in December 1944, which the Greek left uh, never forgot. Uh, the legacy of the Grand Ahmed Dorian was unwanted by all. Which brings me to another reason of oblivion. As I said, the special role Salonika had played in the national schism was an embarrassment for my city, otherwise conservative, royalist, and national-minded. But it was more than that. 
The memory of World War I Salonika and that of the Macedonian Front was related to some non-conventional historical events which did not fit well in the post-war national narrative. Salonika, before the Great Fire of 1917, was not a predominantly Greek city in terms of demography. Muslims and Jews formed the majority of the population, and it was exactly this colorful picture and multilingual environment that had captured the attention of European soldiery and was presented in their diaries and written memories. Post-World War II Salonika was a different city, no longer the Jerusalem of the Balkans, but the mother of the refugees, as Johan written. Refugees had competed bitterly with the Jews, suspected as pro-Bulgarian, had moved into the Muslim quarters, had and still have no particular interest in this multicultural past. If they had one recollection, it was the 1920 anti-Vesinist vote of these minorities, which brought the Cretan premier down at the peak of his triumph after the Treaty of Sèvres. The Jews had stabbed him in the back, that's what they thought. Anyway, there was nothing else for them to recall from Ottoman Selenik, which had been purified by the 1917 fire. And it may have come to your attention that recently this uh, ghostly past created many tensions between our mayor and our bishop, so it's, it's still uh, a cleavage. Uh, no more interesting for the national narrative were developments in the Macedonian hinterland. After World War I, Greece's allies committed themselves to the territorial integrity of Athens' northern provinces, where the majority of the refugees had been settled. Bulgarian revisionism was a threat, Serbian-Greek relations had been seriously injured during the war, and Greece was a defeated and exhausted state. May I say here that now that you talked about the issue of the Aegean Islands, that the reason that Greece did not support Serbia uh, was that Serbia did not back up uh, when there was, uh, the war was imminent with, with Turkey in 1914. <laughs> Before the war, the future of Greek Macedonia was debatable. Even Venizelos participated in this unholy diplomatic bargain, which included the return of Eastern Macedonia to Sofia. The task to assimilate a predominantly Slav-speaking population, in addition to half a million Muslim peasants, and an officially recognized Romanian minority, was a challenge too tough to be handled by a state which had not accomplished yet its own modernization. In any case, in 1915, when war fell upon Greece, the process of integration had not started yet. The Greek state was an alien and a predator, more often coming to ask than to give. All minorities were tempted and flirted with propagandas promoted by friends and foes alike. Armed bands had reappeared. Crimes committed during World War I were added to a very long list of massacres dating back to 1900. These were not pleasant episodes. Fortunately, the mutual exchange of minorities between Greece and Bulgaria, to some degree, alleviated the distress. Yet, it created two long-lasting effects. The first was the Bulgarian desire to retaliate. I wish there would be no peace as long as the Treaty of Neyi uh, stands. Uh, a wish which undermined the interwar plan for a Balkan Federation and was fulfilled in, in bloodbaths during World War II. The second was the dominant role of that refugees from Asia Minor, sometimes Turkish speakers, were called to play in Greek Macedonia. 
they became the national guards of the northern frontier in a new homeland they could not afford losing again. And this fear of yet another uprooting made them even more sensitive to the threat of an alleged internal enemy, the local Slav speakers, who had opted to stay rather than flee to Bulgaria. The same could be argued for, by the way, for Yugoslav uh, Macedonia, the, the present Republic of Macedonia. World War I events also uh, caused them confusion. Uh, the region was annexed by the Bulgarian army, who was welcomed as, as a liberator, and after the Bulgarian <coughs> defeat, it was colonized by the Serbs and suffered the same grievances of integration experienced in the Greek part. And in my view, it was this cleavage between locals and, and refugees, combined with the uh, elimination of the uh, Imbra Federalist leaders in 1924, which supported and accelerated the formation of a Macedonian ethnic identity that you uh, mentioned before. Uh, Macedonianism was strengthened by the World War I treaties and, and tormented Greece for decades, combined with the threat of communism, especially during uh, German occupation and uh, during the Greek Civil War, an ideology which bore fruits in socialist Yugoslavia after World War II. And as we all know, this is not a most popular story in Greece. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, in my view, it is connected directly though not exclusively with World War I. The importance of expatriated uh, Slav Macedonians' vision of, of greater uh, Macedonia, the lost homeland, could be compared with the extremely popular for Greek public history legacy of the Asia Minor catastrophe. The catastrophe, as memory, overshadowed World War I achievements, even the importance of territorial acquisitions. Apparently, the scale of the disaster was paramount uh, by any criteria, military, social, demographic, or ideological. The final death of the great idea, which had nourished the modern Greek state since uh, 1844, left a vacuum which the antagonistic vision of modernization could not replace. This blow was so heavy and so clear that it became an integral part of uh, domestic party uh, politics, determined to a great extent by the refugee vote, especially in northern Greece. What had been lost following the Great War was for them more important than what had been gained through the war effort. The disparity between spoils and losses was the measure of judging the opponents of the liberals and find them guilty and incompetent beyond doubt. It was also the measure to evaluate and to prioritize the effort needed to alleviate the distress of these destitute newcomers. Needless to say, the refugees' drama was real and their needs immense. But even when the process of settlement was accomplished, even after World War II was over, or even today, the manipulation of that drama, the drama of their ancestors, the decimation of the Pontic Creeks, the burning of the infidel Smyrna, are heavily exploited in terms of Greek politics. The pressure for an officially recognized genocide, which renders impossible the, and impious any reconciliation with the Turkey, is the best example of this practice. What happened in 1922 has created a long-lasting moral debt as if the great idea must live in the sacred memory of its sudden death, so sacred that can sanctify any demand or petition, no matter how relevant, in the name of the lost homelands. This is a tool that has been and still being used extremely effectively by the third generation uh, refugee associations. To recall Andreas Pandreou's famous pilgrimage to the monastery of Panagia Sumela in 1983, the strongest transplanted symbol of Pontic tradition in Greece. In other words, the memory of World War I gains is less functional 
than that of the losses which followed, simply because bitterness creates more cohesive and lasting bonds. Comparing gains and losses, reducing the symbolic size of the catastrophe, and therefore is redundant. Since I have already made reference to Andreas Pandreou's uh, Ponting connection, I must now expand a bit on the selective reappraisal of Venizelos' memory in the 1980s in, in uh, what Richard Clough has called the populist decade. <coughs> to my knowledge, uh, this is a question that has not been thoroughly researched, if touched at all. In any case, Pasok promoted the idea that it was a revival of the Venzelist tradition, and this was widely believed, at least in Crete, judging from the rhetoric and the electoral campaigns and the amazing results for decades. <coughs> Roughly speaking, for Andreas Papandreou, Eleutherius Venizelos' legacy was of paramount importance in order, A, to engulf what was left of the center in the 1970s, B, to defeat the conservatives who were conveniently projected by Pasok as descendants of the royalists. Education planners were encouraged accordingly to incorporate more 20th century in the curriculum of all grades, issues like the October Revolution, uh, World War II resistance, the labor movement, uh, the capitalist system, in order to make the new generations more sensitive to class struggle and thus to undermine the national-minded history of war events. In the first history book of this kind, published in 1982, Greece's participation in World War I featured as a 14-page long chapter where Venizelo's choice of side is analyzed extensively and fully justified compared to Constantine, who appears to be motivated only by his pro-German feelings and German marriage. <coughs> what is also interesting is that the politics of the Entente powers towards Greece during and after the war are presented in a manner which promotes a critical, if not negative, stance. My point is that Venizelos in the 1980s was useful for Pasok without his Western allies, and that was also in line with Andreas' anti-NATO and anti-EEC uh, policy. It was exactly the opposite for new democracy, the Conservatives. As the party was shrinking and the centre had been absorbed by the Socialists, Karamalis himself and his successors were tempted and gradually claimed a part of Venizelos' liberal and pro-European tradition. It was the key to an important pool of votes which had to be repatriated to new democracy, then featuring as a centre-wing party, centre-right wing party. But again, as in the case of Pasok, the image of Venizelos was a vague symbol of Greece's uh, fundamental Western orientation, a symbol purified from his involvement in uh, military coups, uh, purified from his risky politics, disconnected from his responsibility uh, in the 1932 uh, Greek bankruptcy, or for having been an admirer of, of Mussolini, things like, like that, never mentioned. This purification would be unattainable without the paramount assistance of public <coughs> history and the manipulation of education with the consent and joint action of both major parties. His canonization, of course, made imperative the exclusion of the most influential diaspora Greek ever, Sir Basil Zaharov, from all Greek history textbooks. Uh, the, uh, there's no reason to talk about him right now. Uh, <laughs> no, the, the, he was a major f uh, financier of the liberals and, and, and uh, all the anti-royalist uh, campaigns and, and, and the broker of deals between Venizelos and, and Lloyd George and, and all the Roman calls it damnatio memoria, so he does not mention his. I mean, even my <coughs> colleagues in the department don't know him. Before I reach my final argument, and in order to make it more credible, I should stress that 
Even during the days of the present financial crisis, the example of Venizelos' attachment and commitment to his Western allies in World War I is constantly used to encourage the Greeks to stick to the European Union or even to the Balkan friends and neighbors. We must never walk alone again because another catastrophe will follow. It may sound simplistic or even naive, but the argument is in line with the tendency of respectable modern Greek historians to consider Venizelos as part of a pedigree dating back to Alexandros Mavrokordatos, the leader of the English party in the 1930s, followed by Harilos Trikoupis, the reformer, Constantine uh, Karamalis, the elder, being the last branch in this tree of the Greek nation's liberal modernizers. Here, the final question must be pressed. Is there a deeper meaning in our willingness as a nation either to forget all about World War I or to use selectively whatever is appropriate to cover our current needs so selectively that the entire national schism becomes incomprehensible? Since the constitutional dilemma has been removed for good, Greece will not be a kingdom uh, again, we must now look deeper into the nature of our national schism. In terms of public history and school history, as I said before, the schism is regarded as a clash between a pro-German king carried away by his wife and the premier who acknowledged the common interests of Greece and Britain in the Near East. More elaborate analysis, like the school textbooks of the socialist period, made popular the oldest uh, interwar Marxist approach that a further expansion to the East suited best the interests of the capitalist urban class which supported Venizelos. In any case, the drama lies in the fact that the alleged united body of the nation was cut into two parts. If we shift from public history to academic history, we must focus on the works of Rakordatos and Bohotis, who have given us all the necessary evidence for an in-depth analysis. Let me state here that the making of the schism and clash between Venzelist and anti-Venzelist stretches beyond the end of World War I and beyond the catastrophe, and it includes, for example, the attempt against Venizelos in 1920, the execution of the 6th, 1922, the attempted assassination of Venizelos in 1933, the execution of three Venzelist officers in 1935, lots of events. Such events contributed heavily to the alienation of the two parts of the nation, but the original cleavage, all agree, was a product of World War I, or was it not? I'm not implying simply the construction of party mechanisms in the 19th century, which were in place before World War I, and they were ready to be mobilized and support partition. Mavrokordatos has referred to various and serious bipolar confrontations, Greek Orthodox versus minorities, refugees versus locals, old Greece versus new Greece, traders versus manufacturers. He pointed that the overlapping of these poles, to the extent it happened, increased the intensity of the confrontation by creating wider camps in the place of parties. The same could be argued in terms of class analysis. The two camps did not overlap with classes. The cleavage cut through the urban class, the petty bourgeoisie, the labor class, and peasantry. Professor Mavrokordatos argued convincingly that the national schism could and should be studied as a crisis in the process of national integration. Greece was not in a position to integrate administratively expanded territories, nor to assimilate numerous minorities. When war fell upon her, Greece was reluctant to accept the challenge of further expansion and insecure of her possessions. The tension increased when refugees were added to the minorities. Thus, the mismatch between the people, the nation, and the state became too apparent to be neglected. 
Venizelos referred to a nation including all the new Greece, as well as the unredeemed, a state of two continents and five seas, his opponents to a small but honorable state. In theory, both camps were adherents of irredentism, but in matters of practice, they were antagonists in the same cause. This antagonism, as to which was the best way to get Constantinople, was deeply rooted. Bavarians tried to modernize Greece by using outsiders, educated Greeks of the Ottoman Empire and the diaspora. But in 1844, after the constitutional revolt, the local notables, the popular Russian party, won the parliament and ousted the newcomers or outsiders, Bavarians and Greeks alike, who had disregarded the natural route and derailed the Greek nation. In the 1850s and 1860s, the supporters of an Eastern Orthodox Federation blamed the Westerners for deliberately undermining the unity of the Orient through the use of nationalism and the infiltration of an alien culture, the European culture. In the 1980s, Trikoup's opponents supported the view that the king, if necessary, should be able to resist the majority of the parliament to temper the growing tendency for democracy, especially if democratization was in favor of the plutocrats of the diaspora or of the bourgeoisie. They maintained that the emphasis on material goods and the development of mechanisms assisting the accumulation of capital destabilized social cohesion and widened injustice. For their ostentatious consumerism, such plutocrats were called caviar eaters and, and golden flies, the golden boys of today. Such novelties were not compatible with Greek values and morals. Not that the opponents of Trikoupis had an alternative economic plan to a state-driven expansion. By 1915, after some decades of intensive modernization, with fewer ups and more downs, discontent was mounting. Nobles from the Seven Islands, staff officers, university professors and judges, the Crown itself, were all threatened by the rise of a Western-oriented liberal business class. Capitalist growth also threatened or had expelled a part of the petty bourgeoisie from the labor market, the public sector or trade. And the same was true for their dependent workers farmers of some standing who had depended on the export trade of currents were gradually losing their financial and social privileges to small farmers growing grain for local consumption. There were many Greeks in old Greece reluctant to sustain uh, a modernization which required more taxes for armaments and for the growing public sector and longer military service at the front. The rising pressure of the army against the non-Venzilist parties after the 1909 military coup, which escalated into a dictatorship of the liberals in 1916 with the support of the Antan forces and was bound to break down the dynasty, was sufficient reason for the social tension to explode violently. If this outward or bellicose policy, bringing wealth to their opponents and misery to them, was the suggested road to Smyrna or to Constantinople, then there were many who had absolutely no interest in this great war of Venizelos. It was not their war, not their great idea. Regardless of all the complicated motives behind the schism, what is particularly interesting is the specific rhetoric used by the Athenian press to present and make comprehensible or digestible the objection or the support to Greece's participation in World War I. For the Venizelists, the state of Athens, had been transformed into an ally of the nation's most despised and traditional enemies, the Turks and the Bulgarians, guilty of high treason beyond any doubt. This turn constituted an internal regression, a full decomposition of the modern Hellenic body. 
to describe best what was the real essence of evangelist policy in the eyes of their opponents, let me translate you a very brief but revealing passage from a newspaper in December 1916. Evangelism was not but the imitation of the Franks, the Franks being in general the Westerners, the Catholics, the Protestants, the imitation of the Franks in politics. Under a healthy surface, it was the most lethal disease. Under the pretense of realism, it bargained Greece's it bargained Greece like a load of onions. Under the title of progress, individual and group arivism was excited. Under the facade of Renaissance, Venizelism tried to achieve the negation of all traditions. Under the pretext of an alliance sought to settle the franc in the head of Greece. In fact, pointed another journal edited by Ion Dragoumis, Venizelos himself, did not look like a manly Greek but like a Jew of a special kind, with a feminine intellect. This gross and blatant propaganda was disseminated nationwide and infiltrated the army. Dragumis, as we all know, was executed in 1920 by the evangelist. Having served as a diplomat in Macedonia, authored many works on flagrant nationalism and declared openly his antisemitism, Dragumis developed into a major symbol of pure Hellenism, deeply rooted in the Byzantine Orient and was acknowledged as the ideal Greek hero by many ultra-nationalist, fascist, and neo-Nazi Greek organizations and parties, including the notorious uh, Golden Dawn, Chrysiavie. Ladies and gentlemen, I have tried to answer the question why the Greek war as a whole has been eradicated from Greek uh, collective memory after World War II, although selective parts of it are coming handy from time to time. In my presentation, I referred to the whole 1912-22 war decayed in order to make my arguments more plausible, although I risk distancing myself from our main topic, the Great War. The presented reasons for oblivion and misuse vary from time to time. Before 1974, one could point to the royal regime, which could not claim a single share in uh, World War I achievements, but many in the making of the ugly national schism. And since post-war Greece was tormented by another schism between left and right, talking about the first one was not wise since not even the army was very proud of its deeds. The fluctuating relations between Greece and its Western European allies was also a part of the nation's memory problem, and this is true for today as well. The dubious impact of World War I on the Macedonian question also complicates the narrative. It looks that it helped to eradicate minorities, but in the same manner strengthened their memories and determination to avenge. This is more than true for Pontic and Asia Minor refugees, especially the former, who have turned the catastrophe into a powerful tool in the politics of memory, not only of memory, of which the preceding war is an important detail. My last argument focused on the nature of the nationalism, an event of paramount importance which will endlessly overshadow Greek participation in World War I. I argued that in spite of the complexity in the formation and composition of the two camps, one can clearly see the perpetual struggle between two competing political and ideological cultures, a pro-Western and a pro-Eastern. They are unable to realize or to recall that they are the two sides of the same coin, two versions of the same self, alas, and Greece. To make the difference meaningful, the two camps demonize each other by mutually projecting images of our outside enemies, the Franks, the Turks, the Bulgarians, the Jews, the Slavs, the Americans, the Germans today. And if I'm not wrong, then the national schism of 1916 was just another episode 
of a birth trauma that Greece had decided to bury and to pretend amnesia rather than to talk about it frankly and be cured. And if you follow Greek news, then you know that this serial of dualism still goes on. Thank you. Thank you.